Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. Welcome to our Catechism class. Today we're in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism and we're simply asking the question, what does the Catechist mean when he talks about my only source of comfort in life and death? I'm going to commence with a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labour, which he taketh unto the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth for ever. What is my only comfort in life and death? Finding satisfaction in life is the quest of most of us, and yet it is, for most of us, elusive. Way back in the 1970s, the musical duo Simon and Garfunkel wrote and sang a song called America. One of the verses of the song goes, Cathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. When the Catechist talks about finding satisfaction and contentment in life, and of course also when this life draws to a close, he speaks of that as being comfort, and he qualifies that with the word only. He's implying that there is only one source of comfort, one source of satisfaction in life and death, and that nothing else will do. The ancient writer of Ecclesiastes helps us to understand that when he tells us that everything under the sun, in other words everything in this world that we do, is utterly futile and will one day perish with us. In this episode I plan to look at a contemporary issue, just one example of how we are offered satisfaction in this world. And then we'll examine a biblical case study of a man who found all the happiness and wealth and prosperity that this life could offer, only to discover that Jesus was right when he said in Mark 8 and verse 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And I think we'll conclude that the Catechist has every right to challenge us with the important question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Look, just do what makes you happy. Find comfort and pleasure. That seems to be the philosophy of the world. 
Look again at the experience of the preacher writing in Ecclesiastes, this time in chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. In verse 10, he tells us of his experience as he gathered everything he could get in this world. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from my pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my reward from all my labour. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labour in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. When I was preparing this talk over the past couple of weeks, the 10 o'clock news on television was carrying an item about gay conversion therapy. It seemed at that time that some government diversity advisor had resigned because of a lack of progress on banning what she talked about as being gay conversion therapy. And she wants a ban on that practice. Now that prompted a completely biased one-sided report on the TV programme. It began with two smiling, happy young lesbians holding hands and gazing lovingly into one another's eyes. One of the girls then spoke to camera, explaining that she had once been a church member at a church where she was urged to deal with her same-sex attraction by avoiding temptation and by finding her identity in Christ and not in her sexual orientation. Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing now. But she was just so miserable, she said. But now she has come out in her true sexuality and she's completely happy and fulfilled and she's enjoying life to the full. Do you know, it actually sounded like a Christian testimony in reverse, a kind of an anti-testimony. The reporter implied that the type of advice she was given was a subtle form of abuse, unlike the more blatant methods used in some churches, as they showed the now infamous clip of a black Pentecostal pastor attempting to cast the gay demon out of someone with stereotypical Pentecostal over-enthusiasm. And to complete the report, the official who had resigned from her post, who apparently self-identifies as a gay woman and who wants this so-called conversion therapy banned, was then referred to by the reporter as a Christian woman. Now to say that that was one-sided is an understatement. There was no attempt whatsoever to present a real Christian perspective. The conversion therapy ban seeks to prevent counsellors and psychological practitioners and preachers, I presume, from telling homosexual people that they can be delivered from their sexual inclinations. They accept the modern but unproven theory that a person is born with a particular sexual inclination, which cannot be altered in later life. They conclude that to deny that person sexual and emotional fulfilment 
is to make life not worth living. Even to the point where the gay person subjected to this kind of conversion therapy will actually want to end their own life. The proposed ban would prevent counsellors from offering any treatment or any therapy or any advice, suggesting that a person's sexual preferences can actually be changed, even if the person concerned wants that advice and actually asks for it. But remember the words of Ecclesiastes. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. Bearing in mind that our Catechist speaks about the exclusivity of comfort, and there is only one source of such satisfaction, let's take a moment to explore some Christian responses to the gay conversion therapy debate. Well, the first point we want to make is the obvious one, that all sexual activity outside marriage is sinful. I know that the gay lobby feign offence when we say that homosexuality is sin. In fact, if you were to say that as a politician, you wouldn't last very long in public life. In 2017, the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party in Britain was Mr Tim Farron, the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale and a committed evangelical Christian. Leading his party into the general election, he was ambushed at an interview for Channel 4, where he was repeatedly asked if he believed that homosexuality was a sin. At first, Mr Farron avoided the question. But later, under intense pressure from party members and others, he said publicly that homosexuality was not sinful. His Christian conscience must have weighed heavily upon him. For after the election, he resigned from party leadership and issued a statement on a Christian radio station. Later, Sky News website reported, and I quote, Asked if he felt forced to say gay sex was not a sin, he replied, The bottom line is, of course, I did. And there are things, including that, that I said that I regret. I, foolishly and wrongly, attempted to push it away by giving an answer that frankly was not right. Well, good for Mr. Farron. For a faithful Christian, there is no option but to confess that all sexual activity outside the lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman known as marriage is sinful. The commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, is to be understood to preclude any non-marital sexual activity, and that's clearly taught in the Scriptures. And homosexuality, by its very nature, is well outside that marriage bond. Consider the moral law of the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, where the Scriptures say, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. In the New Testament, Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 to 27. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed for ever. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. Couldn't be clearer. All sexual activity outside biblical marriage is sin, and sin condemns us in the sight of God, and sin brings upon us guilt with all the unhappiness and misery that results from it. And yet we have to say that sin does seem to make the sinner happy. People enjoy, they will tell you, their sexuality. But it is an illusory, transient happiness. What about the happy, smiling, loving account of the young lesbian in the TV report? There is no doubt that the television company will have deliberately sought out someone to reflect the viewpoint they want us to hear and they want us to believe. But didn't her attempts at living as a Christian make her miserable? Why, living as a lesbian makes her fulfilled and happy. That was her experience. That's what she was talking about. But that's because, quite frankly, sin is generally enjoyable. The devil really knew what he was doing when he tempted Adam and Eve. Sin appeals to our fleshly lusts. So the devil offered Adam and Eve something they would enjoy, even though they were unaware at the time that it would leave a very bitter aftertaste indeed. The sin was tempting. If you want to see the results and the effects of that sin, Read Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to verse 10. Sin always brings shame, always brings a prick of the conscience. But worse, sin always brings guilt. Shame may die out after a while, it may fade. Feelings can become adjusted to new circumstances. Conscience can be massaged into compliance through time. But guilt... Now that's an entirely different matter. For guilt doesn't go away. Guilt, you see, is a judicial condition. A law has been broken, and that law remains broken. And all the happiness and enjoyment and pleasure from the world cannot remove it or mask it, and it will remain as a burden on the lawbreaker forever. And worse... Guilt can't be hidden from the eternal judge. And guilt demands a just punishment under the law. So the gays or lesbians may be enjoying their supposed sexual liberation as they laugh and joke about Christianity on their television programme. And as they commit unspeakable acts of sexual deviancy. And they may even manage to assuage their conscience. But they can never take away the burden of guilt. And that burden is a heavy one. It's a burden which will weigh them down in this life and in eternity. The pleasure that sin offers 
is a transitory illusion. One last observation about the gay conversion therapy ban, and it's this. True Christian conversion is not therapy. The very phrase conversion therapy is so misleading and inaccurate that it could only have been thought up by someone with no Christian understanding whatsoever. Christian conversion is not brought about by therapy, or indeed by any work of man whatsoever. Christian workers, Christian preachers, Christian evangelists don't convert anyone. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the sinner, whereby the sinner is convicted of their sin and brought by God to repentance. The sinner is born again, or born from above, a new birth, a new life, a new creation, and that cannot be achieved by therapy. It's a sovereign work of the Lord, through which the redemption that's purchased by Christ on the cross for sinners is applied to the life of the individual sinner through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can see its effects in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that passage of the Bible that is so much hated by the LGBT plus lobby, and which no doubt would be banned under any new gay conversion therapy law. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 to 11. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see in that passage, there's not a mention of therapy. There's not a mention of therapists doing their work. There's not a mention of treatment. There's not a mention of exorcism. The conversion of sinners of every shade is solely the work of God. So should Christians be worried about this sort of pressure from society and from the legislature? I'm sure that the pressure from the various LGBT lobbies will continue and it will increase, backed by their allies in the media and in Parliament, until some kind of law is passed to make gay conversion therapy, as they call it, illegal. And I'm sure too that the very same people will go out of their way to harass churches and evangelists and missionaries, Sunday school teachers, street preachers who proclaim redemption and forgiveness in Christ. I'm sure that activists will visit church services to see if they can catch out preachers who quote what they would call hate speech in Bible passages like those we have already mentioned. But be sure to understand that any such law won't apply to Almighty God. The one who sits in the heavens, the one who laughs with derision at the foolish machinations of mortal rulers, Psalm 2 verse 1 to 4, read it 
and note that the heathens and the nations are raging and the people are plotting a vain thing. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The same God who in his sovereignty will save and forgive and redeem whom he will and whose grace is irresistible. So what I'd like to do now before we finish is to look at a biblical example of someone who lived for today, was true to himself, who enjoyed all the pleasure and happiness that he could get out of life. His story is found in Luke chapter 16. It's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to think about this rich man. Look at his lifestyle in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So you can see he was living a very opulent and a very happy life indeed. He had everything that this world could give him. He purchased and wore the best of clothes. His outer garments were dyed with an expensive purple dye, which could only ever be bought at a very high price. It was a sign to everyone who seen him that he had everything this life could offer. But this man wasn't just wealthy on the surface. He wasn't just putting on an outward show of wealth. The reference to his wearing fine linen was actually a reference to the quality of his underwear. And he ate well too. Every day he had a diet of the very best of food, enjoyed to access, for he dined sumptuously. Everything about this man spoke wealth and pleasure and happiness like the preacher in Ecclesiastes who got everything under the sun for himself, who pursued every manner of pleasure and built up his personal belongings. And this man was pretty much unconcerned about others. He was happy with his life. He didn't need to worry about those less well off than himself. There was actually a beggar lying at his gate. The Bible tells us that his skin was ulcerated and sore, and whose only form of medical treatment was when the dogs would come and lick his subjurating wounds. This man, lying at the gate of the rich man's mansion every day, in fact so revolting was he in his filth, so disgustingly putrid and obnoxious, that he would literally be thrown at the gate by his friends every day. And you can imagine them holding their noses, hardly wanting to touch him at all, dragging him over, and leaving him there at the rich man's gate, where he would hope that maybe a crumb would fall off the table and be thrown away so that he could scavenge for it. The implication of the phrase, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, seems to imply that his desire went unmet. Our self-satisfied pleasure-seeking rich man 
simply fulfilling the heartfelt longings of his flesh and the lusts of his flesh, found it convenient just to ignore the beggar at best, even though he knew he was there and he knew his name and he knew his condition. The contrast could not be greater. The man who had nothing in this world and the man who was enjoying the richest pleasures that the world could offer him, living his dream life, having his best life now, happiness and enjoyment and laughter and endless satisfaction for his carnal earthly desires. But then of course the inevitable happens as it always does. One day life ends and for the man who had everything in life and who had neglected his soul there is a lost eternity. Now let's not be too squeamish here. There is no point in sugarcoating what the Bible, God's inspired and inerrant word, teaches us about life after death for those who have turned their back on God and lived only for the pleasures of time. So in verse 22 we read this. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The Bible speaks about the conscious state of the lost, being a lake of fire. In Revelation 20 and verse 14 to 15, we're told that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire and everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I know that there are those who primarily think of the fires of hell as being symbolic. Symbolic of the torment of the souls who will be there, whose real torment will be the eternal weight and the condemnation of their sins. But do remember that at the resurrection day we shall be raised bodily. That on that day the believer will be given a new body, incorruptible like Christ's risen body, fully equipped to dwell forever in the new heaven and in the new earth. But the lost souls of the dead also raised bodily on that day of the general resurrection, raised with physical risen bodies that are corruptible and remindful of the effects of sin, what will become of those physical bodies? They won't have a place in the new heaven and earth. So is it not possible that those physical bodies will endure endless physical torment in hell, as did the rich man of the parable. Now when you think about that, that is an awful prospect. A horrendous eternity, eternal life freely offered in Christ and squandered for the pleasures of sin for a short time here on this earth. Would we rather not be like Moses? who could have had all the comforts of this world in the royal palaces of Egypt. But, as we read in Hebrews 11, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, because he preferred to endure the hardship 
of the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So while this world campaigns for what they think of as happiness and self-fulfillment now, in all its diverse forms, and while this world demands that the comforts of earthly pleasure be unrestricted and unrestrained, believe me when I tell you that that pleasure will be very short-lived, and that an endless eternity stretches ahead in which there will never again be any comfort whatsoever but endless unrelenting pain and anguish. Our instructor in the Heidelberg Catechism rightfully instructs us when he wants us to think carefully and consider before everything else what is my only comfort in life and in death. Think carefully and choose very wisely. You've been listening to our Heidelberg Catechism class, part of the Semper Reformata podcast series. Join us for more lessons like this and for church history, Christian doctrine, biblical exegesis and sermons. Search for the Semper Reformata podcast on your podcast app. Subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating to help get even more listeners.